0: session o christ the true light who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us then in it we may behold the unapproachable light and guide our steps uh, guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments by the intercessions of thine all immaculate mother and of all thy saints amen uh, today we have um one of the two chapters, which is probably going to take up almost most of our time, is the chapter on the Annunciation of the Theotokos, um, which starts on chapter seven on page seventy-four. It says the Annunciation of the Mother of God and the Ever Virgin Mary, which the Holy Church celebrates on the twenty-fifth of March. Um, and the uh, Feast of the Annunciation. Of course, the word Annunciation. Uh, Basically, means the bringing of a message. Um, and it tra- translates, partially translates the Greek title of the feast, evangelismos. Evangelismos, the first syllable, ev, um, actually means good. So, evangelismos means the, the bringing of a good message. Nonetheless, enunciation is um, the word that we use in English, uh, ultimately derived from Latin. There's nothing wrong with the word. But it's the message that was anticipated from the beginning, from the very beginning of humanity. Uh, The message anticipated by Adam and Eve, that they would be redeemed from their sins and from death, saved from death. The major problem in human history is the problem of sin. And sin brings death. Uh, Adam and Eve, as we said last time, sinned in the Garden of Eden. They disobeyed God. The, their obedience was supposed to be a path towards glorification. but instead, their, obe- their disobedience became a path to death. So death came into hu- affect humanity because of sin. Sin broke our relationship with God. It it broke the relationship of our soul with God and God's grace and his eternal energies and the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's the source of life for our soul. And that that was shattered, that bond. And thus the bond between the soul and the body became then eventually shattered. And, And that's biological death. Now God allowed for biological death, even though it's a, it was a terrible thing. Uh, God allowed for biological death. The Holy Father says so that man does not become eternally evil. Right, so that sin, so that we don't sin for all eternity. This is what uh, happened to the um, to the angelic hosts who were overcome by their pride and separated from God and sin continually for for millennia, for for ages and ages and thus they progress in their evil Uh, in order for uh, this not to occur to human beings God allowed death death is a consequence of sin uh, but at the same time in his providence his infinite providence and out of infinite love, he allowed this to happen to us. Later on, after the death and resurrection of our Lord, um, the death was then repurposed. Um, this is why we, uh, uh, in, in today, in the church of the New Testament, which is what the Orthodox Church is, the Orthodox Church is the church of the New Testament. This is the church uh, created by our Lord, uh, and uh, established by our Lord, and uh, continued by the apostles and their successors. And in the Church of the New Testament, we talk about death as the end of a race, after which those who re- reach the end, um, right, they, they attain uh, the reward, which is the crown of victory. Um, but before the death and resurrection of our Lord, death was a terrible thing, but allowed by God. Uh, And in in humanity, human beings, since Adam and Eve, because they're mortal, because we're subject to death, we sin. So in Adam and Eve, the sin brought death, and then in the rest of us, our mortality that we inherit in our genes, if you want, in our biological makeup, uh, we, because of that mortality, we sin, right? Because why? Because the moment that we discover, and it's even innate in us, we don't even have to discover it rationally. It's a pre-rational feeling that we're mortal, that we will die. We become philafti in Greek. The English uh, translation is we love ourself in a bad way. And that's the beginning of all of our passions, and then the passions themselves, which are dysfunctions of the soul, are the beginnings of all sinful deeds and sinful acts. And the more powerful the passions get, the worse the sins get, and the worse the sins get, the more we're separated from God. So it's this never-ending cycle. Well, it's not never-ending. It can end um, through repentance, but it's this intensifying cycle that happens. And so death also has brings sin. Um, and so the good word, the good news that Adam and Eve and all of their descendants consciously early on, and then perhaps subconsciously later, the the word, the good news that they awaited was this liberation from sin and death. From sin and death, and the beginning of this is with the 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 of this reversal of this liberation from sin and death comes with the annunciation of the virgin mary the archangel coming down and announcing to her the good news the good news had a particular relevance to her because it was it involved her personally but it's certainly relevant to us as a species right as an entire uh, all of human nature but also personally to us Often it's often we think that uh, all the good things that God has done for us, He's done for human nature in the abstract, right? In the abstract, that it's for all human beings, kind of as a concept. But that's true, but that's not the entirety of the truth. The second half of it is: these are good things that have happened for me, and not just for me, for everyone else, but. For me as well. I have to understand in my heart that all these things this annunciation happened for me, for my personal salvation. God was providing for the salvation of every human being uh, even those who had died previously right uh, but also the salvation of everyone that was alive at the time and everyone that would be born later um the dismissal hymn, remember our biography of the Theotokos relies on scripture, but also on the uh, hymnological tradition of the church, on the hymns of the church, which interpret scripture. The, the, the hymns of the church is, is the public teaching of the church. It's the, if you want to know what the church thinks, right? the first place we should go is to the hymns of the church. That's the mind of the church. Um, and the dismissal hymn One of the main hymns of the Feast of the Annunciation on the 25th of March says that this is a mystery uh, that today is revealed, the mystery from all eternity. The mystery. What is a mystery? The mystery is something that um, is almost, if not completely impossible to explain. Uh, It's also something that, whose significance transcends it's physical manifestation. Right? Something that's much greater than what it appears to be externally on the surface. It's much greater, and it's something that can't be explained with human words. In fact, the the Greek, the first part of the Greek word for mystery, the MY part, in classical Greek, in Archaic Greek, it would have been pronounced mu, musterion, according to the grammarians. Uh, mu is it comes from muin. Mean, in other words, which means to put your hand in front of your mouth, stop speaking, because what you're you can't explain what you saw, you can't explain what you experienced. That's where the word comes from. So it's it's a word that indicates the limitations of human uh, language. Uh, But this is a mystery, right? Something that is some. something that we cannot conceive in our minds. No no human being would have seriously thought previous to this or would have come to this conclusion rationally that God would become a man in the flesh. And yet it was the mystery from all eternity. The church proclaims that the incarnation of God, God becoming a man, was from the beginning, of, from before time, from all eternity. It was God's the uh, pre-eternal counsel to become a man, for the Son of God to become a man. Right, the pre-eternal counsel for the Son of, of God for the Son of God to become a man. And um, we've talked about this before. That it's we can't say what some people say that even if Adam and Eve had not fallen. God would still have become a man because that's a statement that's contrary to fact and God knows all facts ahead of time and so um, we have to attribute this to God's providence that he indeed, he, he indeed foresee the fall he created Adam and Eve knowing that they would fall he provided for all of humanity know, knowing that we would fall and um, And he created the entire universe for human beings, knowing that they would fall and knowing that he would become a man in order to reverse the fall, to free them from the consequences of their fall. Um, At the same time, we can say that human nature was created to be the throne of God within creation. Uh, Human beings were created in order to be individually, St. Paul says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? To be individually vessels of divine grace. But at the same time, the Theotokos is called the throne of God. That's one of our epithets, right? And our Lord has united human nature with divine nature inseparably. In himself, and he is a man. So our our, our entire world, including our, our our nature, our species, was created for this purpose: for God to become man and unite himself with creation in order to save creation, in order to redeem all creatures and to unite him with himself. And so this is the mystery from all eternity that's revealed. In the Annunciation, this is contained in the words of the good message. This is why we say that the Theotokos is the vessel of rejoicing through whom our first mother's curse, it says on page 75, is utterly dispelled. Right? So the Theotokos is the reversal of Eve. The, she's the inverse, she's the new Eve. The old Eve was a virgin. We read in some places she was a virgin in. The Garden of Eden, virginity, remember, looks to the past, the life of Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. It looks upward to the um, life of the angels, the angelic life, into the life of God himself, the Holy Trinity, which is beyond all purity, uh, and then looks forward to the life of the age to come. But the Eve was a virgin who disobeyed, and through her disobedience, Death came into huma- and affected humanity, and the Theotokos is the Virgin who, through her obedience, life came back to humanity. Right, so we have this symmetry, but of course, it's not really a symmetry. It's symmetry only verbally, because uh, what happened with Eve was a, a very great, very grave thing and a very bad thing. But what happened with the Theotokos is infinitely better, infinitely greater, and the source of infinite grace and infinite good for all human beings. There's no comparison between the two. Um, uh, I want to jump ahead to um, page 78, where um, the author talks about the lifestyle of the Virgin. Remember that the Theotokos was... um, In the temple until about the age of 14 or 15, she was dedicated. She was a dedicated virgin. She had made a vow of virginity, which was something new because the women of Israel were expected to be mothers because they expected the Messiah. Since they were expecting the Messiah, no one knew who was going to be the ancestor of the Messiah, who was going to be the parent of the Messiah. And so everyone was expected to have children. And virginity was not something that. Virginity was something that young women practiced at the beginning of their life, but eventually they would be married and then have children. The however made a vow of perpetual virginity, which is completely new. She, she inaugurates that way of life. Uh, and the vows of perpetual virginity were very common in the early church and throughout church history. Um, and it's something that the church, the Orthodox Church, has introduced um, and this vow of perpetual virginity, as we said, looks forward to the life of the age to come. It's, it's, pro- it's a prophetic way of life. It's also a very philosophical way of life. But she had to be married to be because she could not live in the temple. She had to be the, the, the priest's uh, reason that she had to be married off. I'm not going to go through the whole story of St. Joseph and how he was chosen. He was an elder widower, uh, but he was chosen through a miracle, to become, um, to to take her into his house and they were betrothed. Uh, What's interesting here is that there's a difference between, so a betrothal, we have the betrothing as well in the Orthodox Church, right? If anyone pays attention at an Orthodox wedding, the services, there are actually two services that that happen. The first part is the betrothal The second part is the actual marriage. And uh, in in the past, they were separated, right? The betrothal happened perhaps many months before and then there was a wedding many months later. Um, The point of the betrothal is the promise, right? In the old days, the families had to, uh, they, they had dowries and stuff like that. And so the betrothal kind of fulfilled the promise until the young woman came of age Uh, or the young man came of age, and they were able to fulfill the marriage and come together and have a family. Um, But in um, ancient Judaism, the betrothal and marriage had equal legal weight, meaning that a betrothal was basically, legally speaking, as far as property rights are concerned, as far as legal rights are concerned, things like that, it was just as binding as a marriage. Uh, however a betrothal could not be consummated right only a marriage is consummated just like today right this in fact the church has joined the betrothal and the wedding together because it's a hard thing to do when a couple is betrothed there are many temptations right and so the church removed the temptations by bringing the, the, the betrothal and the marriage together on the same day minutes apart Um so, but in uh, ancient Judaism, there was the betrothal and the wedding. The betrothal was legally binding. Um, however, there had to be a marriage ceremony uh, in order for there to for the marriage to be consummated. With Our Lady and Saint Joseph, there was never a marriage ceremony. They were betrothed, which means they never came together. Right? Not before the conception of Jesus. Not after. Not during. Obviously not during, his, uh, not during the pregnancy, but certainly not after the pregnancy either, because they were never married. They were only betrothed. Saint, but it was enough for St. Joseph to protect her. And we also know that St. Joseph knew from the beginning that his main job was to be the guardian of, the, of Mary's virginity. He knew that she made this vow. The, the high priests of the temple took the vow very seriously but they were at a quandary. They didn't know what to do, how to deal with it. But St. Joseph was the solution. He was going to protect the Philotope. St. Joseph, remember, also had, was previously married. His wife had passed away, and he had children from that marriage and grandchildren. Two of his grandchildren became apostles, St. John the theologian, his brother, and then St. James, the brother of our Lord, whose feast it was this past Sunday, uh, is St. Joseph's son who became the first bishop of Jerusalem but the way of life of the virgin is very interesting after she entered um, the the house of Joseph Joseph had daughters and sons she entered his house and she had this modest extremely modest way of life the first thing that um, Saint Ambrose points out is that the virgin bore a body without contact with another body Right, uh, which underscores the fact or emphasizes the fact that the, the, the Virgin and Saint Joseph never consummated their marriage, um, their betrothal rather, it's really a betrothal. Um, she was a virgin not only in body but also in mind. Okay, so with the virginity of the Theotokos, we're not merely talking about the virginity of the body, we are talking about that, but that's only a small part of it. Because the larger part of it Is the virginity of the mind And what does the virginity of the mind Mean What does that mean Does it mean that the Theotokos Never had any temptations That's not true The Theotokos was just like us The mother of God was just like us Subject to temptations But the Holy Fathers They break down a temptation Into various steps And the first step is called the assault. Uh, an assault can arise from e- externally. It can arise internally. Usually it arises from uh, fallen angels that are trying to make su- suggest things to us, suggest ideas, images, in order to get us to sin. And the Holy Fathers say that an assault against the heart through thoughts um, is to be regarded as a sin not yet committed, which means it's not a sin yet, and not subject to the least penance, not subject to any type of penance. There's no guilt. Um, Right? And so, the next step is the coupling. Coupling means you start to think about it. You start to examine it, possibly doing it. That's where the penance starts. That's where guilt starts, that's where uh, sin begins. And so with the Theotokos, the temptations that that came against her, and some of them were, especially when her son was being um, unjustly accused and tortured and executed, those are huge temptations that uh, anyone of course would, in such a position would be overwhelmed by rage perhaps, or by despair. Both of those are sins, but the Theotokos essentially blocked those assaults, right? She had inner watchfulness and attentiveness and blocked those assaults and never allowed those suggestions, those thoughts, those images to ever enter into her heart. Her her mind never coupled with them, never united with them and started uh, conversing with them after the coupling. By the way, um, is consent, right? So there's the assault, there is the working with it, starting to think about it, and then there's consent where you say, yes, I should do this. After consent, consent, of course, um, is the deed when you go and do it, or the word when you go and say it. Um, So this is what virginity of the mind means. Perhaps aside from our Lord, she is the only one that ever attained this high level of purity, but through her effort and through the grace of the Holy Spirit, she was able to ward off all of these assaults. Um, she was also, it says, a virgin in body, but also in mind who, she, who never stained the genuine disposition of her virginity with guile. She was always humble in heart, grave in speech, meaning serious, prudent in mind, sparing of words, studious in reading, Resting her hope not on uncertain riches, but on requests of the poor, intent on work, and modest in discourse. She sought God as the judge of her thoughts, and not men. men. In other words, she was conscious of the fact that God judged her thoughts, and saw her her every inward movement, rather than, uh, and she cared about that more than she cared about how other human beings judged how she she behaved she never sought to injure anyone but to have goodwill towards all she never thought to rise up before her elders nor to envy her equals she avoided boasting loved virtue and uh, and to follow reason never a word passed her lips that was not with grace she never disagreed with her neighbors nor despised the lowly she never avoided those in need and never despised anyone, though they were poor. She never laughed at anyone, but but covered all that she saw with her love. There was nothing gloomy in her eyes, nothing forward in her words, nothing unseemly in her acts. She never made silly movements, nor took unrestrained steps. Her voice was never petulant. Simply put, her very outward appearance was a reflection of her inner perfection, goodness, and meekness. Now, the, the description goes on about her diet, how she fasted, and how she prayed, how she attended all those services. This is page 78. Um, and it continues how um, only necessity caused her to sleep. And yet, while her body was resting, her soul was awake. This is a phenomenon that, we, that the saints describe. Where, when a saint is uh has the grace of unceasing prayer, their body sleeps, but they're instead of seeing dreams and things like, like that, having nightmares, they they continue praying, the mind continues to pray, the soul is this ever unceasing movement. Often in sleep, she would go through what she had been reading, where she read scripture almost unceasingly, where she went on with what sleep had previously interrupted, or she would carry out what she purposed or foresaw what was to be carried out, or foresaw what was to be carried out. She was unaccustomed to go out of the house, except for divine services, and this was always in the company of kinsfolk. She was always busy at home, though the Virgin had other persons who were protectors of her body, yet she alone guarded her character. She inspired respect by her gait and address, not so much the progress of her feet as by, this, as by step upon step of virtue. She possessed all the virtues for whatever she did is a lef- lesson in itself. She attended to everything as though she were warned by many and fulfilled every obligation of virtue as though she were teaching rather than learning. Um, further down on page 79, she was in no haste to leave her home had no acquaintance with public places, preferring to remain constantly indoors, living a withdrawn life like a honeybee. She gave generously to the poor, whatever in her household was left over. And it continues. This domestic part of the Theotokos, her domestic life, um, her personal virtues, right? Saint um, Ambrose says that her external demeanor the way she, she behaved, the way she appeared externally, was merely a manifestation of her inward, of her inward virtues, and her inward purity. Um, and then her domestic life, it says she, um, she was always busy at home, she preferred to remain indoors, she lived a withdrawn life. Okay, so we could say two things about this. One, yes, women, especially middle-class and aristocratic women, and the Theotokos, having been betrothed to St. Joseph, who was a successful carpenter, builder, uh, probably would have been considered a middle-class, of a middle-class standing. Her father certainly was wealthy, because we know that he had very large flocks of, of sheep, and a woman of her social standing, upper middle class, let's say, would have been expected to live a cloistered life, a life indoors. The ancient Greeks, for example, part of their house, I think I mentioned this before, was called the gineconitis, or the women's quarters. The women spent much of their time in there. Men, especially unrelated men, were not allowed in. So part of this, so St. Ambrose is remarking how virtuous this is because this is exactly the world he lived in. The rationale behind this has to do with the um, idea that men and women have interdependent, parallel, complementary roles. Um, That men provide for the family outside of the home Women uh, then nurture the family inside the home, the mother and the father. Um, The father brings the raw materials from the farm, right? And then the woman shapes them, the mother shapes them into nourishment for the child. There's that. There's also the protection of the honor of women. Uh, Ancient societies uh, were not, you know, we shouldn't, romanticize about them, they were kind of violent. And so there was a lot of danger. In particular, there was danger that was connected with passion. And so especially young women could be violated if they were just roaming about in the countryside by themselves. But also there, uh, if they were seen with uh, unrelated men, their reputations could be destroyed. And if the reputation was destroyed, then it was, um, or even questioned, then marriage Became almost an impossibility for all these reasons. Ancient people took precautions, but that's the smallest reason why this is significant. Because you know those things today don't apply uh, because we have a different conception. In some cases, in that that the change in the conception of of uh, of the relationship between men and women has brought what some people describe as liberation. In other cases, it's brought confusion uh, and also anxiety, uh, especially when women are forced uh, to do two things, to live the life of a woman and to live the life of a man in the sense of having a career. Uh, and that's, a, that's something that's a, uh, a very heavy cross and very difficult. Uh, for anyone to bear, to try to do two things at once, to be two things at the same time, two opposite things, be outside and inside at the same time, to use the ancient metaphor. Um, so there's there's confusion, anxiety, so on and so forth. Um, but women today, practically speaking, is, is very difficult to live a cloistered way of life, especially since we're not agriculturalists anymore. But this is still relevant. Because what we're really talking about, the inner essence of what the Theotokos was actually doing indoors has nothing to do with men and women and has nothing to do with the actual domestic chores, although she was engaged in domestic chores. And yes, it corresponded with the spatial sort of organization of the lives of men and women. What the Theotokos was doing was an inward activity. This uh, withdrawn life um, was highly praised. And admired by the ancient philosophers and later, especially the Holy Fathers and the monks uh, and the nuns of the church, the the contemplatives, who wanted to withdraw from the world in the confines of their cell, of the little room, and in their study and pray. And perhaps work on their domestic chores. But as they were working on their domestic chores, that was just a, a temporary distraction for their body. Um, so that they could continue with prayer, the temporary rest, let's say, of, perhaps of the mind, in order to continue with prayer. But this withdrawn life, this in life, the spatial withdraw is directly withdrawal, is directly analogous with the detachment of the mind from connection to material things. Because we said that as a result of death, man became a lover of himself in a bad sense, Selfish, and his mind became accustomed to being fragmented among things, among the things that he accumulated, in order to um, uh, in order to secure his survival, in order to maximize his power, in order to maximize uh, you know food supplies that are around him, so on and so forth. And the mind becomes fragmented and attached to these things and we cannot concentrate, and we can't turn our minds inwardly to cultivate our inner self, and we can't pray unceasingly, which is what the mind ultimately is con- con- uh, created to do. And so here we see the Theotokos as a model contemplative, living a withdrawn life, detached from the world, in the world, but not of the world. That's, that's what that means. You live in the world. Christians are to live in the world but should not be of the world. We live in the world, we do our chores, we do our work, but we're not attached, we're not weighed down by the things of the world, right? And so the Theotokos is exemplary, he's a model for this. Um, time is it? Okay, there's an interesting description here of our outward appearance. Um, on page 82 on the top of page 82 even though it says outward appearance towards the bottom the the whole page is about her appearance St. Gregory Palamas writes it was necessary that she who was to bear the fairest among the children of men should herself be incomparable in all things and prepared to receive that beauty a wondrous beauty since it came from her who in all things resembled her exactly. Uh, let me read that again. A wondrous beauty, since it came from her child, who in all things resembled her exactly. Saint Andrew of Crete says, Beauty outstanding, she was a statue carved by God, the image of the divine archetype superbly expressed. Remember, we said that human beings, God created man and in- Uh, Man, Adam and Eve in the beginning In the image and likeness of, Of himself And the image is something that's innate in us And the likeness is something That we grow into Where we have the uncreated energies Of God permeating And our bodies and our souls become transparent To the uncreated energy To the eternal light of God Which of course is the definition Of beauty And so the Theotokos was Living through the, living this virtuous life, being infused by the grace of the Holy Spirit, was an image of the archetype. Uh, Eve was an image, was a copy, a carbon copy of the archetype. Of the archetype here is God. Um, and Theotokos is the new Eve, right? This, this beauty was a beauty that flowed first from her soul, but from her soul to her body. And it was a it was a beauty that um, uh, was that invoked and indeed manifested life. And it was a beauty that, um, instead of provoking, lust, which is what unfortunately, uh, because we are fallen and impassioned, that's what beauty does for most of human beings. It inspired profound awe and reverence so that many found it hard to actually uh, look Christ and his mother actually in the face because they were immediately overwhelmed by the awe and the reverence and perhaps even ashamed of their own sins and this is their physical appearance there's a description of her on the bottom of page 82 and the top of page 83 uh, this is by Saints Epiphanios and Nikiforos. She preserved the virginity worthy of honor as well as constancy. She spoke very little, only about what was necessary and good. Her words were sweet to the ear. She treated everyone with due respect. With each person she carried on a corresponding conversation without laughing, without being upset, still more without getting angry. She was free of all these passions. And what I, what I wanted to say earlier about the discussion of the Theotokos' uh, lifestyle is that for us, all of that kind of sounds boring. She was so serious. She always prayed. She fasted. She stayed indoors. Sounds boring. Uh, but that's only because we're mis, misguided and misinformed about what our actual nature is because all of those things, all of those virtues were an expression of her freedom. She was really free. Modern feminism would say, well, no, she was actually oppressed because, well, she couldn't leave the house. Um, But the true definition of freedom is not the absence of some kind of authority, not being under any authority. The true definition of freedom is freedom from sin because this freedom from authority is really a freedom to sin. That's what most of us want, the freedom to sin. The freedom to continue sinning without being judged or even constrained. Uh, But the Theotokos was the opposite, and all, all of us are to seek the opposite, which is freedom from sin. Because freedom to sin is no freedom at all. It's slavery to sin. Sorry, freedom to sin is a form of slavery. We're enslaved to our passions, and after a while you can't stop, even if you want it. Think about people that are addicted to something, they can't stop. Um, And freedom from sin, however, is the opposite of addiction. It's complete moral liberty, complete liberation, right? And it's that type of freedom that actually brings us the peace that Christ has actually promised us, which is not our peace, which is momentary, but which is his peace, which is eternal and stable, Um, and lasting and so she was free from all of these passions she was of medium size the color of her complexion was as the color of a grain of wheat her hair was long, lovely and somewhat dark, her glance was quick and penetrating her eyes reminiscent of the color of olives, her eyebrows were slightly curved and dark her nose was medium, her lips were the color of roses and sweet worded her face was not quite round and her fingers were long. There was no pride in her, whatever, but simplicity in everything without the least pretense. She was a stranger to all indulgence and at the same time showed an example of sublime humility. Her clothes were simple. In a word, she showed forth the divine grace that had penetrated her, that was fused in her soul and her body. There's an interesting discussion of the Holy Virgin and icons, and I will let you read that. Um, but I want to jump to page 84 because we're, we're we have a lot to discuss here, a lot of important things. So the rest of this chapter is essentially a survey of the Patristic interpretation of Luke chapter one verses 26 to 38. Maria, is there a way I can share my screen here? I think I can. Uh, can actually, I can't. Can you make me the co-host? I gave you the ability. Okay. So I copied and pasted this, pasted this in the word um, processor. So Luke 1, 26, 38. Uh, Luke chapter 1. In, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee called Nazareth, named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, that thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him She was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give Unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So a good part of this the chapter in our book uh, is essentially uh, a survey of patristic meditations on particular verses. And the, the, there's a specific type of meditation here that's happening. By meditation, of course, I mean rhetorical meditation. I don't mean, um, you know, meditate, what most people today consider to be meditation, um, uh, meditation on some mantra. Meditation means thinking very deeply about something, in this case, a line from scripture. Um, rhetorical meditation and the, the me- rhetorical method that many of the Ho- Holy Fathers use uh, to interpret these verses is that of Ethiopia or sometimes called prosopopeia in Greek, uh, which Roughly is translated personification, although in English, in American English, at least, personification means something slightly different. Um, uh, But it's a rhetorical elaboration, right, of the scriptural verses, um, of this dialogue between the Archangel Gabriel um, and the um, Most Holy Virgin Mary. And... Uh, the lines that, the poetic lines that the Holy Fathers attribute to the archangel or to the Philotokos, um are not historical in the literal sense, because they are rhetorical elaborations. They're drawing out the meanings um, in these words, right? Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. There's a lot packed into there. So, there are different ways to draw all those meanings out one way that the holy fathers used is that of the dramatic dialogue where they use personification they put they elaborate the words and expand the dialogue and put these expanded words into the mouths of the of the archangel and theotokos words that they historically didn't say but the meanings of which are in the original words that they did, the historical words that they uttered, right? So literally it's not historical, but on the conceptual level, on the level of concepts and meanings, it's completely historical, right? It's completely theologically valid to do this. And so we have all these dialogues uh, that the Holy Fathers um, uh, are... uh, not imagining because they're not imagining in the creative imaginative sense but but they're drawing out the meanings They're, it's exegesis it's hermeneutics um, through the various parts of the uh, of the dialogue uh, the question of the you know with the coming of the archangel and then the fear of mary at the sight of the archangel and the paradox of her conceiving Right, and then also the meaning of the the naming of our Lord Jesus, um, and uh, what his mission shall be in the world, and then the Theotokos asking a very honest question How shall this be? Because I know not a man, right? That's a very legitimate question, um, and then the angel. Reveals to her the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost, which came to her, came into her. The Holy Ghost, which of course is the third person of the Holy Trinity, um, and is always involved in the, was always from the beginning involved in the creation of the world and of man, in the sustaining, we know, of, of nature, but also in the salvation of humanity. And through the Holy Spirit, through the the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God became a human in the womb of the Virgin. Right, The Holy Spirit, this is directly analogous to what happens at every divine liturgy. When through the invocation of the Holy Spirit, the bread and wine are consecrated, and transformed into the body and body and blood of Christ, and Christ becomes really present as a human being on the altar table. And we have communion with His body when we commune of His precious body and of His blood. We have communion with Him through His body and His blood. We commune the consecrated bread and wine, which outwardly is bread and wine, but inwardly is His actual body. This is why in Orthodox churches above the altar we have the portrait of the Theotokos who is wider than the heavens or more spacious than the heavens. And she's hovering over the Holy Table because there's a direct connection to what happened to her and what's happening on the Holy Table. And it's only because of what happened to her that what's happening on the Holy Table is actually possible. So the Holy Spirit brings, makes present uh, the Word of God. And in her womb, the word of God became a real human being. And one would say, well, how can this be? Because he became an embryo, unconscious. Our Lord went through all the stages of human existence up to his 33rd year, from being an embryo, uh, you know, just a few cells, to being an adult human being. He did this willingly, however. He willingly subjected himself to this humiliation. Because he is the infinite God. Right? Just like he willingly subjected himself to thirst, uh, and he willingly subjected himself to being tired, uh, he willingly subjected himself also to the elements, rain, cold, heat. He also uh, willingly subject, subjected himself, allowed himself to be captured and tortured and crucified and put to death. All these things happened freely, willingly, in order to save us, right? And so he really became a human being. The pre-eternal Word of God, as a person, became a human being, acquired a human soul and a human body in the womb of the Theotokos. And there's this. I I, I hate to skip over all the dialogues, but you could read the enjoy the dialogues at home. And read them, but I want to read this line from Saint Proclus, if I could find it here. Um, Saint Proclus is perhaps the greatest of the Marian fathers. So the, his sermons are masterpieces of uh, scriptural exegesis, but also Marian theology, the theology of the Holy of, of the Most uh, Holy Where he says that the the virgin's body was, a, uh, was like a loom or a web, he says, um, and that, the, the, that, that clothed, that, that created the clothing that covered God, that made him visible. If anyone finds that, please let me know. Um, I'm just scanning here. should have marked it. Anyway, maybe we could write it in afterwards. Find the actual page. Oh, here it is. Page 91. <laughs> anyway, I, it was right in front of me. Uh, St. Proclus, Patriarch of Constantinople, also enhances the theme and proclaims, O Virgin, from where... Didst thou obtain the wool to fashion a garment to clothe the master of creation? How in the web of thy womb didst thou thou weave the pure and sinless cloak? Adam was naked, and with the leaves of a fig tree he covered his shame. But to restore that which was corrupted, wisdom in the workshop of virginity has by divine operation woven a new covering. And the same writes, <coughs> excuse me and St. Proclus writes the Theotokos is the web of the dispensation on which the incomprehensible cloak of union was woven the weaver was the Holy Spirit and the wool was the divine power descending from above and also that wool of the ancient world Adam's flesh from the immaculate flesh of the Virgin which uh, would encompass. The immeasurable grace of Him who clothes all flesh. That's a, those are amazing lines, right? Just like the, the threads in a wool garment. Sometimes they're of different colors. Sometimes they're different substances, right? Sometimes they're different types of thread. They're woven together in the loom, on the web, on the strings. If anyone's ever used a loom, there's some strings that I don't know the technical terms for these, um, but then the the loom brings down all of the uh, of, of the the woolen threads, and so you have this amazing unity that's established uh, between Adam's flesh and the divine power—that is, the divinity itself, the divine person, the Word of God Himself—and the weaver was the Holy Spirit. Right? It's—it's it's an amazing image. It's very vivid. Um, towards the end of the chapter, on page 101, or rather, on pages 108 and 109, the Theotokos is called the Bride of God. And there's an interesting discussion here on what this actually means. Because uh, it's it, first, it's a mystical metaphor, right? Um, marriage being a metaphor for um. Uh, union but also being chosen by God in mystical language this metaphor the metaphor of the bride may also be found expressed in these verses it shall come to pass that as a bridegroom will rejoice over his bride so will the Lord rejoice over thee Um, there are more scriptural passages there Um, at times marriage was so often taken As the symbol of God's choice, that once the woman appeared prominently in the story of salvation, she was bound to be invested with the bridal robe sorry, bridal role that is the bride of God. So, when we say that the Theotokos is the bride of God, first of all, we know that this means that she's chosen. She's chosen. She's not chosen in the sense that she's predetermined, things are predetermined, but she's chosen because of her choices because of her will, her disposition. And God knows this ahead of time, of course. Um, She's also the bride of God because she's united to God. And what's surprising are how many fathers talk about her as the bride of the Father. It shouldn't be that surprising to us because we know that our soul is created to be the bride of God right? Our soul is created to unite with God. And so in the mystical language of the Church, the Holy Fathers talk about that as an espousing, as a nuptial union on this, in a spiritual sense, a spiritual union, right? And so the Theotokos as the bride of the Father shouldn't surprise us because she, of course, is the most virtuous of all women and the most virtuous of all human beings. And in fact, especially after the Annunciation, was the most virtuous of all created beings. Uh, because we say that she became higher than the cherubim and the seraphim, who are the highest ranking of, all, of the angelic orders. Um, St. Germanos of Constantinople uses the title Theonimphi, the Bride of God. Um, and then there's a passage that's kind of confusing, um, where... Theotokos talks about in in one of the um, one of the the hymns um, by the holy fathers. The Theotokos uh, says that she is uh, both the mother of God and the sister of God and the spouse of God of Christ. Right. Um, again, this is uh, these relationships are all taken. Um, uh, they're all theological metaphors. She's, well, she's literally the mother of God. But at the time, at the same time, she is the sister of God to the extent that through her son, humanity was adopted by God. All human beings became adopted and became co-heirs of the kingdom of God. Um, and she's also the bride of God because as we said, all human souls, all human beings are created to be to unite with God but also at the same time it's another way of talking about how Christ is everything to us and was everything to his mother, every relationship he was the sum total of all human loving relationships and beyond, and he's beyond the sum total of all loving human relationships right, He that's that's how close our union is with him the last thing we'll say is about her obedience I think, for this chapter, that the obedience of the Theotokos reversed the disobedience of Eve. right? And the obedience of the Theotokos, which is a union between her will and God's will, worked the union between all humanity and God himself. So I guess I'll stop there. I know it's 8.36, but we should add a few more minutes here to our meeting uh, for any questions or comments on anything that was said or read.
1: Father, well, I do have a question.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, when Saints Joachim and Anna uh, brought Mary to the temple, it was through prophecies that were given to them through uh, the archangel that came to St. Anna to tell her of uh, what the future held for Mary at the time. So I'm a bit confused uh during uh so that excerpt that you uh put up there from the bible where it almost seems like the theotokos had no idea or inclination in terms of what was happening and what the angel was telling her and what was to happen so is it that uh you know in her time uh at the temple that none of this information was revealed to her during her stay there like The fact that she was able to go into the Holy of Holies, whereas uh, other women were obviously not, and even uh, the high priest himself was only able to go there once a year. Um, Like, Does any of that, or how does all of that play into her not being aware of, or seemingly unaware when the the angel comes and speaks to her about uh, what's happening?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, as you were saying that I was thinking of the dismissal hymn, um, one of the resurrectional dismissal hymns which says that this, this was a, a mystery that was um, uh, this was a mystery that was hidden from all eternity and unknown even to angels so the this was uh, the pre-eternal counsel of God which had been revealed in symbols and uh, partially to the holy prophets. Um, but it was, it came as a complete surprise the Holy Father, say, to every rational being. Um, the archangel Gabriel was the first to learn of this. And we, we read in other, uh, like in other liturgical texts, like in the Akathist, where he's, he's surprised. He doesn't know how to answer some questions. He he, this is completely beyond what any of the angels uh, or any human beings had ever conceived of. And so this, this had not been revealed fully to the Philotokos um, uh, in her stay in the temple. and um, And certainly she strove for a high level of virtue and attained a high level of love for God. And in, indeed, became a vessel of the Holy Spirit to a high degree. Uh, But God doesn't reveal everything all at once to his saints. He reveals things as he sees fit, as he knows uh, is the proper order. Uh, Also, he waited for her to actually freely choose to participate in this, right? Because uh, the the last part is... um, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. This this is the Amen of the Theotokos. Amen, of course, is the consent. Uh, let it be so. Um, and so the Theotokos, with her own, through her own free will and her own volition, freely chose this. Um, but indeed, it was not revealed to her from the beginning. Um, so... But just like it wasn't revealed to the angels, and when the angels witnessed this, uh, they were amazed. And Saint Gregory Palamas says that their amazement—they were so amazed at the incarnation of God in the womb of the Theotokos—that that that is the moment when the uh, uh, holy angels uh, attained, were, were given the grace of immobility of will, right? Immobility of will, which is strength of will, when they will not. Their will is fixed on the will of God and they will never depart from it. But this was uh, a consequence of their amazement at what happened and the love that it, uh, for God that it generated in them because the incarnation was also for them. It wasn't just for human beings. Palamas underscores that. It was also for the angels. They gained that. And as you know, our soul, the human soul, has something in common with the nature of the angels. So when our Lord became a human being and he acquired a human soul, that part also, um, that part of him corresponded also to the angelic nature, right? So the angels attained, in other words, a higher level of communion with God than they had before, after the, his incarnation. But they didn't know. Um, and the holy prophets had only been given types and shadows. Prefigurations. another thing we should say um, is that the Theotokos was the first person to partake uh, in the salvation that her son brought to the world um, many people ask "Well, was the Theotokos ever baptized we know that the Holy, the Holy Apostles were the Holy Spirit came down on them on Pentecost and then afterwards, they the rest of us were all baptized. So what happened to the Theotokos? Well, first the Philodocus was present at the Pentecost, but even before that, even before that, she had her own Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and purified her. And the Holy Father said that they purified her by increasing the grace, such an abundance of grace as had never been before bestowed upon a created being greater than the archangels and the cherubim and the seraphim certainly greater than lucifer in the beginning as the first created being ever enjoyed um, this was completely unprecedented all of this was unprecedented any other questions there aren't any questions we could uh, wrap it up for tonight and we'll continue next week um, what are what are the feasts next week um,